0: Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, again, is our text, and we're not going to read it again right now, but we will read it as we go through it. But before we dive into the message, I I would ask us just to have another word of prayer that God would speak to us and that we would listen as he speaks. God, your word is great. And you have been so kind and gracious in giving it to us so that we could know you. So that we could know your son. So that we could know the power of the spirit that dwells within us. So that we could know the way in which you would have us to walk. And God, I pray this morning that you would take your great word and your great spirit and apply the word to our hearts in the way that we need it applied. And certainly, God, as we sit in this room this morning, of our hearts are all in different places. We all need different things. And God, we thank you that your grace is big enough that you can minister to, to us where we're at. And certainly as we've looked through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that's exactly what Jesus did. He found people where they were at, and he took them to a better place. And God, I pray this morning that 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 is what would be done today, that you would meet us where we're at, and then you'd urge us and push us and nudge us along so that we would be in a better place in our relationship with you. Thank you for your goodness, for your kindness, for your graciousness. And God, as we close things up in a little while, I, I pray that we would give you all the honor and glory for what's done here today for you alone truly deserve it. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. While they're on the road again, I've often wondered what the conversations between Jesus and the disciples looked like as they made their way from town to town. And and honestly, it would have been fun uh, to to have been a part of those conversations. And certainly, we know what some of them are, for even today, that's what we're going to study, a conversation between Christ and his disciples. But there must have been so many deep things that Jesus revealed to them that their hearts and minds couldn't grasp or understand. And I would imagine at the very same time, there were many intriguing things that the disciples said that probably caused Jesus just to shake his head or roll his eyes or say, come on, guys, uh, let's let's get it together here. As we look at the text today, we see that another very pivotal conversation takes place. It begins with a question that is asked by Christ, and then it continues with some very straightforward teaching that I believe should be beneficial to each of us. As we left off last week, Pastor Matt uh, preached to us how Christ had healed the blind man, and Jesus did this in a gradual way. And I appreciated the message that Matt gave last week, as it reminded us of the gradual nature of our growing faith, that we don't arrive in the the point where we're going to be all in a moment, but it takes time as our understanding is broadened, as our minds uh, begin to receive in a deep way the truths that Christ has shown to us. We understand that Christ had taken that man out of the city because he was done with the city, but I was thankful for the reminder that though he was done with that region, he was not done with the people that lived in that region, that he still loved them and he desired to minister to them. Well, as they travel on, the passage before us is one that takes place about a week before the transfiguration would take place. And we'll look at that next or in two weeks. And it's good for us to have an understanding of the timeline of Scripture because connecting the dots of where we've been and where we are and where we're going helps us understand the intentionality of Christ as he made his way to these places and through these places and as he ministered to the people that he found there. This passage That Christ was, or that we're in today, is another passage where Christ is gracious to them. He had already displayed for them his majesty and his glory, his power, his ability, his wisdom, his strength, his compassion, his grace, and mercy. And now he was going to take things to the next level. The disciples were hard headed, but he needed to impart this information to them, for it would be a help to them down the road. As I make that statement, it reminded me of what Paul wrote in Romans 15, that the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope And everything that Jesus was teaching his disciples, everything that he was relaying to them about who he was and about who they were and the things that were going to come to be. He was giving those things to them so that they could have hope in the days ahead And let us understand that what Christ explains to them today, it rocks their world, that the Son of Man is going to suffer many things, that he's going to be condemned, that he's going to be rejected, that he's going to be harmed, that he's going to die, but then he would rise again. The disciples didn't know how to handle this because they loved Jesus so dearly. But Jesus gave these things to them so that when he died and when he rose again, they would have the hope to continue on and change the world that they lived in for the glory of God. Christ was giving them hope. Not hope in a system, not hope in a government, not hope in themselves, but hope in him. And this is still the very place where all hope and true hope is found. And may we be encouraged today as we go through this text to place our complete lives under His authority, for He alone deserves to have lordship in our lives. The big idea this morning is this. The question that Christ asks is meant to reveal to us the level of commitment that we have to Him. The question is simple, but the answer to the question changes everything. The question that Christ asks is meant to to reveal to us the level of commitment that we have to him. The question is simple, but the answer to the question changes everything. So let's dive in today and diligently consider the text that is before us. The first thing we see is a thought-provoking question. Verses 27 through 30, the Bible again says this, and Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi and By the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elias. And others say, One of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man. I love a question that makes me think. I love thinking through the Bible in a way that that causes me to evaluate what I've always heard. And there's a benefit to this, but there's also at the same time a danger to this. It's good for us to not just give the surface level Sunday school answers that we've grown up hearing all our lives, but it's good for us to dig into the Bible to have an understanding on our own of why it is we believe what we say we believe. That it's not just a head knowledge, but it's, it's deep within our hearts. It's deep within our soul. So that when somebody asks us the reason of hope that is within us, we can give them an answer with meekness and fear, understanding that the things that we believe have changed our lives. Now, we have to be aware that as we dig into the Bible and we, we process some of the deep things of the Bible in, the, in a theological realm, it could cause at times... The things that we've heard to shift as we have a better understanding of the things that God has revealed to us. Has anybody ever had that happen? You've heard something from the Bible, but then when you studied the Bible on your own, you came to a a different conclusion, more of a biblical conclusion maybe than what you've heard as a surface-level answer. I think we all probably have done that before. I think we all have thought through the Bible in a way, or at least I hope we have, that has caused us to come to a deeper understanding even if it challenges some of the things that we have always heard as we have grown up. And so as Christ and the disciples head out of one town and they begin to make their way to another town, Christ begins to drill into this idea of what their understanding was of who he was. He begins in in a a very wise way as he softens the, the blow or breaks the ice. And he says, hey guys, who is it that men say that I am? As you're out and about in the town, as you hear the crowds talking when I'm not present, what is it that people are saying about me? And again, Christ was wise in doing this because he was showing the disciples that he loved them enough to care about their opinion, to care about what they understood, to care about what they heard. Now, what the crowd said about Christ and what the reality is about Christ are often two very different things, as we're going to understand today. And yet, as Christ asks the question, he says, who do men say that I am? He gives pause and allows the disciples to answer. As the disciples begin to speak, they say, oh, some say that you're John the Baptist. Or some say that you're Elijah. Or some say that you are one of the prophets. And this answer to this question is very intriguing to me. Because all of these men were dead And what are these people saying? That these men had come back to life and were living again. We know that this was true of Herod, as we saw it a few weeks ago. When when Jesus came on the scene, what did Herod think? Oh, this is John the Baptist that's come back from the dead. And one of the things that has been a stumbling block for people in the world since the time of Christ is this idea that Christ died and rose again. But what's amazing to me is in this moment, they were willing to say that all these other people were able to have resurrections, but Christ wasn't. Isn't that crazy? That they were understanding or believing that these mere men, these these men that had lived before them had died and they rose again, and now they were appearing before them. But when it came Time for Christ to die and rose again. Oh no, that can't happen. We could never believe in a resurrection like that. And so the question is thought provoking. Christ breaks the ice. He asks them what people think. He allows them to respond. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say that you are one of the prophets. But then, as they continue walking down the road, Christ looks at his disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? We understand what everybody else says, but who do you say that I am? We understand that that people are believing that a miracle is taking place, that John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that Elijah has come back, and, and that some of the prophets have made their way back, and they're attributing that I am those people reincarnated back in the flesh, but who do you say that I am? Now, as we think again about the disciples' response initially, As Christ asked, who do men say that I am? We must understand that that for us, if we were placed on the level, if somebody said of us, oh, you're John the Baptist, or you're Elijah, or you're one of the prophets, that would be a good thing for us. But as these people gave that response about Christ, understand that it was a degrading thing. I'm not saying that these men weren't good. Jesus says of John the Baptist that there's not a greater man that's been born of woman than John the Baptist. We know the prophets did great and wonderful works. We know all these things. But for Christ to be put down to their level would reveal that they have again misunderstood the reality of who Christ was. So as Christ asked the disciples then, who do you say that I am? We see that Peter is quick, to respond, he seems to jump at the opportunity, and he says, "Thou art the Christ." Matthew goes on to reveal that Peter's statement was, was maybe a little bit longer. He says, "Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God." And so for Peter to boldly proclaim this truth, it's revealing that God had been doing a work in his heart so he could begin to see the reality of Christ. And friends, let us understand something today, that before we can ever proclaim the truth about Christ, it is God who does the initial work in our hearts to open our eyes to see the reality of who he is. Why? Because we are blind. We are dead in our sins. And yet, as the Spirit of God begins to awaken us to these truths, as we see in the life of Peter in this moment, Peter is coming to this understanding, though it wasn't perfect yet, though his faith wasn't in complete or full maturity yet, he was understanding some things about Christ that he had never understood until this moment. As Jesus responds in Mark's gospel, he says, don't tell anybody. But Matthew's gospel says, blessed art thou, Simon Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but your Father which is in heaven. So Jesus is reiterating that the growing maturity in the life of Peter as his faith was, was, was prospering, so to speak, Jesus is revealing that his eyes had begun to be opened to the truth and his eyes were being opened by the very God of heaven and earth. So this thought-provoking question that Christ begins with, I think is a question that is worth us pondering even today. We could ask today who who do men say that Christ is and we would get all sorts of answers. You could go in, in downtown Burlington and, and you could ask this question, who who is Christ to you? And And the name of Christ would be blasphemed. The name of Christ would likely be trampled on. Some would have a misconception of who Christ was. And maybe it was out of a a purity of heart because they hadn't understood the truth of the gospel yet. And while we would look at their answers and pick their answers apart, the reality is it's not our job to pick their answers apart, but the truth of what we need to do is assess who is Christ to us. And so, as we often want to give the world a hard time in their misunderstanding of Christ, maybe it would be more beneficial to us if we stop and reflected on who Scripture reveals Christ to be. So, who is Christ to you? I'm not asking this in a, a sentimental or a, a feelings based nature. I'm not asking you to, to wax eloquent about. all all, all the wonderful things that Christ has done. I'm asking you, who is Christ? Now, the things that he has done point to who he is. and, And the bedrock of this answer needs to be founded not in what we think and not in what we feel, but in what scripture and the spirit of God has revealed to us. And so I would ask you again, who is Christ? We understand that he is the shepherd. He is the Lord. He is the visible form of the invisible god and your answer about this question changes everything about your life because if you think he's a good teacher or a friendly man or somebody that could do wonderful works then i would suggest to you friend today that he has not really changed your life but we when we understand christ as scripture describes christ that he is the christ the son of the living god our opinion of him or our estimation of him will grow beyond even what our mind can comprehend. And so this thought-provoking question, as Christ asked it then, should still be a a thought-provoking question that we ask ourselves today. I wonder this morning, do you have a deep and growing and intimate relationship with him? Or is your relationship with him casual at best? Do you think of him daily? Do you worship him Daily? Do you bow before him daily? Or is the only time you think of the person of Christ when you gather on Sunday mornings? That album that I shared with you a few moments ago is one of the things that God has been using in my life to help me have a greater understanding of who Christ actually is and what Christ actually deserves. And so I would ask this again, this thought provoking question. Who do you say that Christ is? Who do you say that Christ is? If a random stranger on the street came up to you this afternoon and said, who is Christ? Could you speak of him in a way that paints a picture of the truth of who he is? Or would you just simply give basic answers that anybody, even an unsaved person, could come up with? One of the things that we strive to do with our children, and as you know, we don't do anything perfectly with our children. You've seen the way they act. But one of the things we strive to do with our children is to get them at a very young age to fall in love with the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because when you fall in love with the person of Jesus Christ, it changes everything. It changes how you view yourself. It changes how you view the world. It changes how you view eternity. And so I would ask you again, Who do you say that Christ is? The second thing we see in this text is an unfortunate reality. In verses 31 through 33, the passage continues on and the Bible says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and of the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly, which simply means he spoke it plainly. He spoke it simply so that they would understand. Middle of verse 32 continues, and it says, And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. And when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Go, Peter, right? In the last section we looked at, Peter. When asked the question, who do you say that I am, Peter stands up, I imagine, jumps up and boldly proclaims, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And as we said, Jesus applauded Peter, so to speak. He says, well done, Peter. You are listening to what the spirit of God is doing in your heart and doing in your mind. And I imagine it was an occasion of rejoicing both in the life of Christ, but also in the lives of the disciples because they were getting it. Up until this point, they had been rebuked by Christ on several occasions because of their lack of faith, because of their lack of understanding, but now they were getting it. As we learned from Matt last week again, this idea of growth in Christ is gradual, and just as Christ gave the eyesight of the blind man back in a gradual way, that is how we grow as well. In the moment we're saved, we don't understand everything. And even leading up to the point of salvation, who had to process and think over and, and, and figure out the idea of Christ before you submitted yourself to Him? Not perfectly, but we all did in some level. We thought about Him. And so when Christ says, flesh and blood is not revealed to this, this to you, but your Father which is in heaven, this was an occasion to rejoice because the, the minds had been opened and the hearts had been softened. And so now as they go on, Christ begins to teach them. And what is it that he teaches them? Well, Mark tells us. He teaches them that the Son of Man, a phrase which is peculiar to Mark about Christ, a phrase that we understand comes first off in the book of Daniel as it's talking about the future realities of when Christ is going to return. Jesus, or Mark says that the Son of Man, or Jesus says rather, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. That the Son of Man must be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and of the scribes. That the Son of Man must be killed. But also that the Son of Man would rise again after three days. As the disciples heard these words, they went from rejoicing to having a punch to the gut, so to speak. Jesus, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're getting it, you're understanding. And now that your minds have matured and you're you're grasping these truths, I'm going to take you a little bit deeper. I want to give you a little more understanding. And he says, me, the son of man, I must suffer many things and I must be rejected and I must be killed. But understand this, disciples, that after three days, I will rise again. And what a rejoicing statement that was by Christ but where did the disciples get stuck? That Christ would suffer, that he would be rejected, and that he would be killed. Now, now, why would that give them pause? Well, who was Christ to them? In a physical way, he was their provider. He was their friend. He was their protector. He was the one who would listen when, when they had questions and problems that nobody else could answer. And you imagine for a moment if somebody came to you and said or that, that in three days or in a short time I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna be rejected and I'm gonna be killed, wouldn't you do anything in your power to stop that from taking place? If it was a person you truly cared about, you would. And so from an earthly perspective or a fleshly perspective, we can applaud in some ways what Peter does here. Because though his mind was, was gaining understanding, this passage reveals to us that he was not fully there yet. The Bible says that when Christ taught them these things, as he explained them in an open or simple manner, that Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Typically, when you see this idea of somebody taking somebody in the Bible, it's it's by force. It means that you're you're grabbing them and pulling them to where you are. We can think of Christ maybe standing in front of the disciples at this point, or maybe walking beside the disciples as they made their way down the road, or maybe sitting. The disciples were, were there, Christ was there, and Peter gets up and he takes Christ aside and he brings him over here. Now, Why would Peter do that? In part, I think it's because Peter didn't want to embarrass Christ, that the things Christ said were so crazy that that Peter wanted to have a private conversation. Maybe the other side of the coin is that, that Peter often opened his mouth and got rebuked publicly, and so he figured, if I rebuke Christ privately, maybe he'll rebuke me privately. So Peter takes Christ to the side. The Bible says that he begins to rebuke him. That idea of rebuking, it's a strong word. It means to, to reprimand, to, to correct, to, to almost chasten like somebody had done something wrong. And that's what Peter was doing to Christ in this moment. And Christ sits there and he takes it. We know from the other Gospels that Peter says, be it not so, these things will not happen unto you. And we know that Christ speaks to Peter later on about the reality that Peter's going to deny Christ instead of defending Christ. But here in this moment, Peter was bolstered up with with arrogance, so to speak, as he was seeking to correct the very Son of God. Not so, these things will not happen. And Peter rebuked Christ. But then... As the passage continues, the Bible says that as Peter was here and Christ was facing him, that Christ turns his back and looks at the crowd. Now, in a casual reading, this would mean nothing. But as we understand what Christ says after he does this action, I think it explains a lot. Jesus turns from Peter. He looks at the crowd, but who does he begin to rebuke? Peter. And what does he say? Get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus was painting a very vivid picture here of the place of Peter's heart in this moment. Jesus was facing Peter at one moment. The next moment he turns around to reveal that Peter was basically at this time opposed to Christ. He was against the works of God. He was against the very plan of God. And as Christ turns away from Peter, as he begins to speak towards the disciples and rebuke Peter, he says, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Let that sink in for a moment. That the one that Christ had just spoken so highly of in regards to his understanding being opened, was now being openly rebuked by the very Son of God because he was opposing the plan that God had for Christ. And Christ says those words, Get thee behind me, Satan. Now we could spend a lot of time here. But as we connect the dots of where we've been to where we are, do you remember a few weeks ago, When Christ taught the disciples and he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and beware of the leaven of Herod. Now, why did he tell them this? Because they were going to face some things that would rock their world. They were going to face some things that they didn't like. And this was one of those things. And what was the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? It was pride of heart saying that we don't need you or that we have a better way. And in this moment, that's basically what Peter was saying without knowing it. Because if Christ was never taken, if he, was never, if, he, if he never suffered many things, if he was never rejected, and if he never died and rose again, then where would that leave Peter? Lost in his sins forever. And yet in this moment, as Peter is rebuking Christ, Peter, in essence, is speaking out against the very thing that he needed as he rejected the plan of God. And the words that Christ speaks to him are words that I think of often in my own life. And what does he say? You savor the things of men over the things of God. Can I ask you today... Where is this unfortunate reality a reality in your life and in mine? Where do I savor the things of men over the things of God? Where have I complained about God's plan for my life rather than walking in it with humility and graciousness? Where have I, as a pastor, savored my will over God's will? Now, now we get it from Peter's perspective, right? He didn't want Christ to die. It it wasn't that he was opposed to Christ as a person, but it was that, in in a sense, he was opposed to Christ as God in the flesh who came to be the Savior of the world. And as God was doing something through the life of Christ that would bring salvation to to humanity, when Peter stood opposed to that, Jesus is saying, Peter, you're no longer on my side if that's the attitude that you are going to have. And let's break this down a little bit in our lives. What in our lives has God desired to sanctify us with that we have been opposed to? What, what difficult trial has come to our life that we have rejected and pushed back at that God wanted to use to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ? Every time we do that, do you understand what Jesus would in essence say to us? Get thee behind me, Satan. For you're savoring the things of God, or the the things of men, more than the things of God. Well, let's look at it from a different glance. Maybe it's not a negative thing that God is trying to do in our lives, but maybe at times we get so focused on earthly things, earthly possessions, earthly gains, earthly comforts and when God calls us to forsake those things or abandon those things or when God takes those things from us, what is our attitude? We have to think. We have to think through this passage and, and as I thought through this passage today or, or this week rather, it, it, it gave me pause because I never want to be labeled by Christ as a Satan, one who is opposed to the plan of God or the will of God to my life. But maybe we need to ask ourselves, where has that been a reality for us? So the disciples' hearts and minds were were being opened. Their their understanding was being broadened. And yet in this moment, we see that Peter was was adamantly opposed to Christ as we saw the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, all those people that uh, were religious by nature or, or moral by nature. They, they were opposed to the person of Jesus Christ, thinking that are, there was a better way or another way. And that's what Peter is saying here. But can we agree today that there is no other way than God's way? That if Christ had not gone to the cross, then we would be left in our sins, dead in this life, only to become more dead in the next life. Separated from God now, but also separated from Him For eternity. And as we think about this life and the life to come. Everything that God desires to bring into our lives. We should receive with open arms. Because whatever our God ordains is always right. And it's always good. And it always brings about his perfect plan. I like the way that the ESV phrases the end of verse number 33. Where it simply says you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of men. What does Paul tell us in his epistles? (laughs) Set your mind on things where? Above. Where who is seated? Where Christ is seated. And why is Christ seated there? Because his work on earth is finished. Salvation has been provided for all those who will place their faith and trust in him. And so as we think about this thought-provoking question of Who do we say that Christ is? We then must do an evaluation of our lives to see where this unfortunate reality is is being found in us, that we're opposed to the things of God. And I don't think in this room today that we would be verbally opposed to the things of God. I think it's something that actually takes place in the heart, that we become bitter, that we become resentful, that we become upset or irritated or impatient who's ever grown impatient with God before and we have to think through this in a way that is specific to us not to those around us and so in this moment Peter was not bowing to the lordship of Christ but he was bowing to his own will to his own desires and Jesus calls him satan and i pray that you'd meditate on that that picture that Christ paints as he turns his back on Peter and faces the disciples while talking to Peter, because it's, it's a valuable picture to keep in our minds. And may we in our lives understand where we have savored the things of men more than the things of God. And so we have a thought-provoking question, and we have an unfortunate reality, and finally this morning, we have a life-changing call. Initially, I was going to stop at verse 33, and maybe you're saying, I wish you would, but I'm not going to, so just get over it. We're going to make our way to the end of the chapter, Because the passages fit together so well. If you've ever looked at a nice, a well-done kitchen and you see those drawers that are dovetailed, that's what these passages are like. They they fit together perfectly as Christ continues His teaching. In verses 34 through 38, the Bible says, and when He had called the people unto Him, so it seemed like it was a private setting, Christ with His disciples, with His back towards Peter, He then calls the people to, to join them, along with his disciples, and he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. A life changing call. No doubt, if you've been at church for any amount of time, this passage is one that you have probably heard or, or read. Uh, it's, it's often seen on, on pictures or plaques as it displays to us this idea of following after christ and and here the scene shifts and i'm sure the moment must have been a little bit awkward right like as peter how do you recover from that um you walk back to the disciples and and like how many times do you think the name satan was brought up in a joking manner towards peter from this point forward get behind us satan oh we know who you are satan I don't know if they, they did that, but I know if it was me, I probably would have done it. Um, maybe I shouldn't be proud of that. I don't know. But the awkwardness of the conversation is over. The disciples are back together in a group. Jesus calls the people with the disciples to follow after him. He begins to teach them. And this call of Christ that we see in this passage is, is simple. simple. It's not hard to understand. It's, it's like what Christ says a few moments, or Mark says a few moments ago, that he taught them openly, openly or, or simply. It's not hard to understand. But can we agree today that it's hard to live out? That what Christ says here is, is not difficult to comprehend from a standpoint of, of understanding the words. But then taking the words and, and making them a reality in our lives are two very different things. Have you ever had somebody explain something to you, and in your head you got it? But then, when you went to do it, you, you fumbled and stumbled and fell and, and looked like a fool. We probably all have. And that's kind of what takes place here as we rest in our own strength, as we do life in our own power. But Christ says there's a better way. And so he says in verse 34, the middle of it, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And as I read this verse over and over again this week, um, it came to my attention, at least for myself that sometimes we want to reverse the order of how Christ has things here. But it it, it does a major disservice to what Christ is saying. We want to say, if any man will follow after me, let him pick up his cross and deny himself. But where does Christ begin? He begins with denying self. You see, there's a lot of people, and probably a lot of us at times, who say that we are followers of Christ, yet we're not denying ourselves. We say that we're dedicated to Him, walking in His ways, and yet there are portions of us that we are holding on to firmly and adamantly, that we're not willing to give those things up. And what Christ is saying here is crucial to living out this call of discipleship that He places before us in this moment, he says, if any man is going to come after me, well, the disciples in the crowd are probably thinking, well, we're coming after you, right? You just called us to come to you and we came. So we're obeying, but Christ doesn't end there. He says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, now what does it mean to deny self? It means to not savor the things of men over the things of God. It means that we don't place at a higher priority the things that we want to do, the things that we want to accomplish, the things that we want to have, the plans that we have made, the way that we want to live our lives over the things of God. To deny self means that in everything I do, I'm making sure that it's not what I want, but it's what God wants for me. Fast forward to the end of the New Testament where Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane and what does he pray? Not my will, but thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. And I think it's important for us to to think about this question of whose will is it that we're pursuing for our lives? Whose will are you pursuing? Even as a pastor of a church, whose will am I pursuing? You know, we've been talking about what's next for our church. And the last several Sundays, the, the sanctuary has been pretty full. This is a holiday weekend, so we'll give some people, we'll give the sinners a pass. Um, all you good Christians are here. But do you know, as I think about the future, as the leadership thinks about the future for the church, it's not my will that, that we should desire. It's the will of God. And so what I sent in an email last week that we want you to pray. Do you know why that is? Because we want to make sure the very next step we take, whatever that step is, is the step that God would have for us. Selfishly, and I I don't think it's a wrong desire, but selfishly, I would want to see this place continue to grow. That we build another sanctuary. Now, selfishly also, I don't want to go to two services. Why? Because it's, it's... It divides the body of Christ. I don't want that. Selfishly, and this is something I've been thinking about, I I don't want to plant a new church. Why? Because I like you guys. No, I, I love you guys. But what if God said instead of spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to to make your facility bigger, what if we dump that into another community that doesn't have a gospel-preaching church? Do you know what that would take on my part? Denying myself. And let's be honest. We don't like to deny ourselves. We like to assume that our desires are always God's desires. We like to assume that our plan Is always God's plan. And so, as Christ is speaking to the disciples and to the people, he says, If any man will come after me, let him first deny himself. For you will never truly follow me until you have denied yourself. You will never pick up that cross until you have first denied yourself. And as we think about this from a worldly perspective, Doesn't the world say, and we like this message, that you should never deny yourself? You should always get what you want. At any cost, at any measure, you should get what you want. But the Bible has a different message, friend. And Christ, the Son of the living God, whom Peter just proclaimed as Lord, has a different message. And it's that we begin by denying ourselves. And so I would ask us, are you denying yourself? A good way to evaluate whether or not you're denying yourself is by looking at how you spend the things that God has given you to steward. Let's start with the idea of our finances. Are we denying ourselves when it comes to the finances that who has given us? God has given us. Now our church is blessed richly But I would ask you if you're not denying yourself in that way to understand that you're missing out on something that God has for you through giving to and through His local church to to accomplish the kingdom work not only in this place but in the regions beyond. Are we denying ourselves in our finances? Are we denying ourselves in our time? How much time do we spend in the Word of God? Studying. Getting to know the Savior that died for us. How are we spending our entertainment? Is it on things that that only gratify the flesh? I think there's a misnomer sometimes when it comes to the idea of entertainment. We can enjoy entertainment and at the very same time glorify our Father which is in heaven. Why? Because He's the one who's allowed us to have good things in our lives. But can we understand and agree that there are times where entertainment in itself can become a god? that we allow ourselves to digest things that don't point our minds or direct our hearts towards the person of Christ? How are we spending our time in these things? How about even simply your thought life? Thought life is hard to control. Anybody agree with me? You have a bad day and you're negative towards everyone and everything. And though you may never speak a word of harm to those around you it's in your heart in, in your mind and it's in your heart you know why paul says think on these things because these things that he's referencing in ephesians point us to the person of jesus christ in every situation that we face so christ says deny yourself and then he says take up your cross we would automatically think that denying ourselves would would be the equivalent of taking up our cross but they're two different things, because when you deny yourself of something, you have to fill that void with something else. And I would ask this today, you may be doing a good job of denying yourself, but what are you filling that void with? It's one thing to listen to Christ and say, I'm not going to do this, but what has Christ told us to do that maybe we haven't started doing? Christ had to carry his cross, and in his, him carrying his cross, he brought redemption and salvation to a world. So we think of a cross as a negative thing. And quite frankly, it is a negative thing. But didn't many positive things come from Christ bearing his cross? And so what cross are we called to bear? What trial, what difficulty, what what pleasure are we called to give up for the sake of Christ and his kingdom? And then Christ says, when you have denied yourself and when you have Taken up your cross, then and only then will you truly be a follower of me. And that's why this call is so life-changing. It's because it's not easy-going, casual, go-with-the-flow Christianity. It is dedicated and pointed and intentional Christianity. That every step I take and every thought I have and and every move I make, it means that I am following him. And and Christ goes on to say this is when we find what real life is. Now, if we were to go downstairs and, and talk to the kids who could talk in the nursery and we ask them what life is about, what are they gonna say? It's about animal crackers. I don't know. The, the, especially Claire, right? Anything Claire can get her hand on. That's what life's about in the moment. You go to children's church and you ask the kids in children's church, what is life about? And they're likely going to say, having fun, right? doing things that are enjoyable. You go to the youth group on Wednesday nights, and they're going to talk about maybe maybe sports or things at school. You go to a young adult, and they're going to say, life is about establishing myself in this world with a career, uh, making my way in this world. You go to an adult with kids, and they're going to say, my life is my kids. And then you get up into the older years with somebody who's on their deathbed, and you ask them what life is about, and do you know their answer is going to be drastically different than a kid in the nursery? But if, if any of those answers are anything other than following Christ, then we have misunderstood the call to discipleship. So what is life? The fullness of life is found in Christ and Christ alone. The enemy comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but Christ has come that we would have life and that we would have it more abundantly. And this call to follow Christ, it doesn't mean that we forsake our family and that we don't have any enjoyment and that we quit our jobs and become monks and never speak a word again. But this idea of following Christ means that wherever, and whenever, and whatever, and however, that's what I'm going to do. Whatever it costs me, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to pick up my cross, and I'm going to follow Him. And the world will look at us and say, you are crazy. And our response can be, you're right, I am crazy in love with my Savior, Jesus Christ. And whatever He wants me to do, That's what I desire to do. Very quickly, as we make our way through the rest of the passage, Christ says, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Again, a a distinction that is very different from what the world says. We think we have to save our lives in order to find it. Christ says, if you're going to find your life, you've got to lose it. And this idea of life has to do with our identity, who it is that we're living for, who it is that we're worshiping, who it is that we're bowing to. If we are going to find true life, If we're going to have an identity that is satisfying, that makes us whole and complete, then we have to lose the natural man and cleave to the spiritual man. Then he goes on to say, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake in the gospel, the same shall save it. So Christ tells us what we are to live for. In verse 36, he says, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? How many people are trying to gain the whole world? How many of us are trying to gain the whole world? Jesus says that it could come with a great cost because what we're trying to gain reveals who our hearts have been set on. Are we savoring the things of men or the things of God? In verse 37, He says, "'Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul?' Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him shall also the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, who is looking forward to the day when Christ comes comes and returns to take us home to be with him? I long for heaven, folks. I know I'm only 38, but I long for the day. when I see my Savior face to face. And what a day that's going to be as we see the one who died in our place so that we could have life. And you know what Christ is saying? That that if that is a true longing in our hearts, it's going to change the way that we live. He says in verse 38, Whosoever there shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed of when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And I skipped a part there because, you know, we misunderstand sometimes, and it connects back to what Jesus said about Peter savoring the things of men and the things of God. Friends, if we are not bowing to Christ in the way that we make our decisions, do you know what Christ is saying in this passage? That we are bowing to an adulterous and sinful generation. Now, we would never want to admit that, right? But what is this adulterous and sinful generation? It's one who prioritizes self over the things of God. It's one who rejects what God says for what man says. Jesus says there's a day when, when you will stand before me. And you're either on that day proving that you were bowing before an adulterous and sinful generation or that you've bowed, or that we have bowed before him. And so I would ask us today, as we think about the statement of Peter, that thou art the Christ. I wonder if that's the statement that we are making with our lives day in and day out. As I said, this passage is about a week in the timeline of life, the life of Christ before the transfiguration. And, and as Jesus takes... Uh, Peter and James and John up to the top of the mountain and they see Elijah and Moses um, kind of come down in the clouds and we, they see Christ kind of lifted up and they hear that voice from heaven as God the Father speaks. What is Peter quick to say? Oh, we should build some tabernacles here, right? One for, for Moses and one for Elijah and it's good that we are here. But what does God the Father say? This is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. And I pray this morning that we have heard him today. And that as we've heard him, that we would think through the question that he has asked. That we would evaluate in our lives where this unfortunate reality has taken place. Where we've messed things up, got things out of order, been focusing on the wrong things. And that we would heed to the life-changing call of denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him. Friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, the reality is he will never be your Savior until you first bow at his feet in humility, recognizing that he alone has power to save. You may be here striving through your own efforts to make it to God. You say, my plan is good. I I have the steps all outlined. I know where I'm going. But friend, if your plan is anything other than the plan of God through Christ, then at the end of your life, you will be separated from Him forever. Will you bow before Him today? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. Will you bow in His presence and receive what He has desired to give you? For those of us who are saved, I pray that we would think through the question that Christ asked. Who do you say that I am? Who are you teaching your children that I am? Who do your neighbors think that I am because of the way that you live? And that we think through the unfortunate reality in our lives where we have got things twisted and mixed up, where we're walking out of step. And then when we evaluate that we would heed to the life-changing call where we deny ourselves, where we take up that cross, and where we follow Him.